This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Jesse Puji, and today we are breaking down the emerging industry of cannabis. After spending decades as an illegal drug, U.S. states have begun to make regulatory changes and build legalized marijuana marketplaces. To help me break down this market, I am joined by Jeff Hoffman of Marathon Partners Equity Management. Jeff is co-portfolio manager of a fund which invests in U.S. public cannabis companies. We discuss exactly what those regulatory changes will look like, the difference between federal and state laws, and companies across the value chain that are showing up in public markets. I hope you enjoy this business breakdown. All right, Jeff, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thank you for having me. So today we're breaking down the cannabis industry, and it's a space I know nothing about. Let's just jump right in. Give us a sense for what is cannabis? What is the scale and size of this industry? Cannabis is derived from the cannabis sativa plant. That's the plant that we'll be talking about today. THC and CBD are the cannabinoids you generally always hear about. THC being the psychoactive component, CBD being the non-psychoactive component. When we think about industry size, it's a $100 billion industry today, which $25 billion is legal and $75 billion is illegal. What I love about this industry is we're not recreating the wheel. We're simply bringing cannabis consumers from the illicit market to the legal market. That happens when states legalize. There are states that are not medically legal and not recreational legal. When a state goes medically legal, that means someone has to have a call with a doctor, go see a doctor, they get a prescription, they can go buy cannabis product at a dispensary. When a state goes adult use legal or recreationally legal, that consumer no longer needs a medical card, but other consumers who don't have a medical card can literally go buy cannabis at a dispensary. And so when we think about the TAM, where we've come from and where we're going, in my opinion, this industry is going to be well over a $100 billion legal industry over the next decade. In 2019, it was an $11 billion industry. COVID created a massive pull forward of demand. People were locked in their homes. They were anxious. They were scared. What did they do? They turned to the product. And in my opinion, this industry, and we'll see it when New York has adult use legal sales, which is going to happen very shortly over the next year, and New Jersey, I think people are going to say, whoa, this isn't what I thought it was. This is not just a West Coast thing. And that's going to create an entirely new category of consumers who feel like the product's been validated. And I think the market is going to take off from that vantage point. One thing I want to back up just on the acronyms, CBD and THC. THC is the thing that gets you high and CBD doesn't. What's the layman's version of that? That's fair. THC can kind of change your mood. You can be more creative. Bizarrely, I have friends who consume THC to do more creative work. And I actually never thought people did that to be creative, but they do. CBD 
can be used in tandem with THC. There are different ways of formulating these cannabinoids in these products. But I think what's really important is taking a bigger step back. There are over 100 cannabinoids in the plant. Due to federal illegality and a very difficult time for folks to research the product because of all the hoops they have to jump through, we don't even know really about the other 95 plus cannabinoids. It's a mystery. And I think that over time, as federal legalization occurs, whether that's piecemeal legalization or comprehensive legalization, we're going to start learning a lot more about these properties of these cannabinoids, and we're going to use them in a very different way than anyone thought possible. And you mentioned the TAM of obviously 100 is total, 75 is illegal. Just from a pure numbers perspective, is the market growing? The whole market, is it growing? It's really important because we need to look at the market as every single state can be thought of as its own country. You're not allowed to bring product across state lines. So if I grow cannabis in Illinois, I cannot bring that product to Massachusetts and sell it. I have to recreate my entire infrastructure in every single state I have a license where I might grow cannabis. So when we think about how the market's growing, the total TAM is growing significantly. If we go back to 2018, it was a $7 to $8 billion legal market. It's going to be about a $45 billion legal market in 2025. However, the growth rates of the multi-state operators, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, is growing significantly faster than the total TAM because the states that have legalized and where we're going to start seeing legal sales over the next few years really benefit these limited license states, which again, I'm sure we will talk about further. But when we put numbers to it, these cannabis companies, these MSOs, they're going to grow about 50% in 2022 versus the market, which should grow probably at about 20% in 2022. Everyone has their different views on drugs, weed, all these different questions. But just go back in history a little bit and tell us what has been the history of cannabis? What sort of things have happened in the legal landscape? How has it ebbed and flowed over the years? And then maybe bring us to where we are today. And there's a lot of acronyms or you've thrown an MSO, like explain what all the different pieces of the industry look like today. So the plant's been around for thousands of years. It's been used historically as medicine. The Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 was the first federal U.S. law to criminalize marijuana for individual possession. Medicinal marijuana was legal, but it was a very expensive fee system to tax its use. The Controlled Substances Act of 1970, signed into law by President Richard Nixon, repealed the Marijuana Tax Act, enlisted marijuana as a Schedule One drug along with heroin, LSD, and ecstasy, basically dubbing this drug to have no medical use and a high potential for abuse. Well, by definition of 37 states having medical use cannabis and 18 being adult use legal, I think people kind of understand that there is clearly a medicinal benefit to this. That being said, I think it's very instructive to look at Schedule 2, 3, and 4 drugs. Schedule 2 drugs, Oxycontin, morphine, cocaine, those drugs are more safe than cannabis. Allegedly. Schedule three, anabolic steroids. The schedules don't make sense. And I think that there's a very broad recognition that cannabis should be scheduled at a lower rate or descheduled. The problem is Washington, D.C., and politics. And it always seems to be that case. And there's a very particular reason. If you look at adult use support for legalized cannabis in the United States, it's about 68% versus 40% a decade ago, right? So a lot more people believe in the legalization of adult use recreational cannabis. 80% of Democrats support it. 70% of independents. 
50 percent of Republicans. This is a bipartisan supported issue. Really hard to find in the U.S. That being said, you have to look at the demographic of who controls the Senate. Senate Republicans, on average, are 66 years old, and the most powerful Senate Republicans are even older. So when you look at the cohorts, or rather the demographics who support adult use legal cannabis, the support falls off as you get older. So even though the average American is 39, they're not well represented in the Senate. And that's what's caused this issue of, should we have the scheduling and full federal legalization, or is a piecemeal approach to legalization the way this should occur? And in my opinion, what we'll find is incrementalism is the way forward. And I could talk at length about that. If you play devil's advocate and you say in the 70s or whatever, it was called the schedule. What was the argument then for why this was such a terrible thing and had no value? And The war on drugs. There was this nonsensical narrative that cannabis would kill you, would make you crazy, things that are factually incorrect. And that's been proven time and time again. It's very frustrating to see what happened decades ago, but we have the opportunity to fix it. President Biden, as a first step, had promised when he was running to expunge folks who were nonviolent cannabis offenders. He's yet to do anything. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of displeasure and frustration on many folks' behalf, but I think that we are moving forward And a lot has happened behind the scenes that is going to cause something to give and that will start changing the system. From an objective to your point around they were made up things, objectively speaking, I guess, is marijuana addictive? Is it more addictive, less addictive than something like alcohol or cocaine? Like, Just give us a sense for from what you know from the science about the actual drug itself. Cannabis, by definition, is addictive. It is in the DSM. That being said, what I think is far more informative How many people have died from cannabis consumption? Compare that to opioids and compare that to alcohol. From recent studies I've seen, 95,000 linked alcohol deaths annually, 50,000 opioid linked deaths annually. I saw a great study that said in order to die from consuming cannabis, you have to consume 1,500 pounds in 15 minutes. If that's 1% right, that seems pretty impossible. So at the end of the day, it's really hard to die from cannabis, but it is addictive. I think a really interesting place to look is in Florida, a study came out in 2020. 65% of patients reported either a reduction or total discontinuation of at least one prescription or over-the-counter drug. Across all symptom relief categories, the percentage of patients who indicated either a good amount of relief or complete relief was 80%. Cannabis is used to treat pain, back problems, muscle spasms, anxiety, depression, insomnia, It is shown that when people consume cannabis, there's less binge drinking, less opioid use. I could go on and on. It's just helpful to understand that perspective, I think, because there are lots of old stigmas and things associated with it. There's a lot of bad information out there and facts are really hard. It seems like the whole value chain has been structured around the legal situation. So maybe talk a little bit about this. Federally, it's illegal, but states have legalized. Like, What does that all mean, actually? How does that mean you have to do it if you're going to do it legally? And then... What does the industry look like, actually, from a value chain perspective? And who are all the players, the various players? State legal means you can go to a dispensary in a state that has legalized cannabis, that has gone through the legislative process, it has a system in place to tax the product, it has a regulatory body in place, it's set up for legal sales and consumption. 
So I buy my three and a half ounces in Massachusetts. What's the value chain behind that? How did that get to me? Walk me through that. It's really helpful in terms of understanding the public U.S. cannabis investable ecosystem. There are ancillary players. There are going to be folks that literally buy product from Asia, whether that's a growing medium or equipment or components to build equipment. They'll bring that into the U.S. or maybe they'll buy the equipment already built overseas. There are manufacturers and distributors that are public companies. They will then sell that to a retail company, for example, that could then sell that to a grower. Growers, big MSOs, which we'll talk about, generally speaking, are not going to a retail store to buy. They're buying through distributor or direct manufacturer or creating stuff themselves. On that token, folks that create the product themselves and sell it through retail, it can either be their own retail or third-party dispensaries. The economics do dramatically change if you're selling it through your own retail or third parties and if you're producing it. So are you vertically integrated? This is the part of the ecosystem that, in my opinion, is truly the generational wealth creation opportunity because it's the most structurally and efficient market I have ever seen in my career. What is an MSO? How do their operations work? What are the different flavors that exist out there? How they operate inside this marketplace? And maybe talk a little bit about the marketplace itself because you said it's so inefficient. What makes you say that? We need to take a step back and look at the map. There are unlimited license states and there are limited license states. Unlimited license states, California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, by definition, anyone can apply for a license. And if they're granted a license, they can start operating whatever they've gotten a license for. In limited license states, Minnesota has two, Connecticut has four, Virginia has five, New York has 10. Every state is its own country. We have to remember that. So by definition, these states cannot have more than a set amount of licenses. So these MSOs, these multi-state operators, have licenses in various states. So these MSOs are creating infrastructure, very expensive infrastructure. We're talking four to $500 per square foot to build, 50, $100 million facilities to produce pot and sell that product. When we say, why is this so structurally inefficient? There are a myriad of reasons. These U.S. cannabis companies are not allowed to list in the U.S. because it is federally illegal and the NYSE and NASDAQ, the major exchanges, will not allow these shares to trade on their exchanges without protection from the federal government in some form. So they're relegated to the secondary exchanges in Canada. The Canadian Securities Exchange is where the vast majority of these MSOs are primarily listed. The liquidity of these companies is actually quite fascinating. The top five multi-state operators have a cumulative market cap of $20 billion, but only trade $60 billion in aggregate a day. If I compare that to a Canadian licensed producer, we'll call them Canadian LPs, these are companies that have zero operations in the US selling THC, but it's federally legal in Canada, so they're allowed to list in the US. Canopy Growth, Tilray, all the companies you always hear about completely irrelevant to American cannabis, to U.S. cannabis. The only thing American about them is they can list in the U.S. Canopy Growth, for example, is a $4.5 billion market cap. It trades $70 million a day. So it's trading $10 million more a day, even though it's a fraction of the market cap. And more fascinatingly, if you are an institutional investor, you're probably not allowed to invest in these U.S. companies. Why is that? There are custody issues. So your prime broker most likely is not going to allow you to trade those stocks, JP Morgan, Pershing, Credit Suisse, the list goes on. It's easier to count the 
banks that will allow you to custody those shares. There was some research that came out earlier this year that showed about 4% of MSOs are owned by institutional holders. That is a very small number. And so as we think about the structural inefficiency, that's why this is structurally inefficient. And adding to that, compliance departments of institutional investors, even if their prime broker will allow them to custody, generally just say no because of the federal illegality. What that creates is an incredible opportunity for retail investors and more nimble allocators to gain exposure and front-run big institutional investors, much like Bitcoin a few years ago. So you have this opportunity, and it's kind of fascinating from a valuation perspective. And just to compare this to Canadian cannabis, because we just talked about it, US market cap is about two and a half to three times bigger, even though the market's over 12 times bigger. So when you look at revenue multiples, which is the only way to look at these companies, because the Canadian cannabis companies have no earnings. They're negative free cash flow, negative EBITDA. So on EV to revenue multiple, these US companies are actually trading at a discount because folks simply are not able to invest in them. And a lot of people mistakenly believe Canadian cannabis companies are US cannabis companies. Factually incorrect. What I have always found so appealing about this story is we are at the very early stages of growth, but we're growing so fast, generating significant margins in cash flow, trading at egregiously low multiples. And when I say that, it's important to put that in context. Because these multi-state operators, on average, are trading at eight times 2022 EBITDA, growing 40 to 50%. And what's even more interesting, that doesn't capture the legal states that are coming online in 2022, 2023, and 2024. So the right way of looking at this is looking out to 2024 EBITDA, in my opinion. These companies are trading at four to five times EBITDA. If you take a step back and look at the TAM, the $100 billion TAM we just mentioned, in my opinion, that could be a $75 billion to $100 billion legal market over the next decade. If you assume 30% EBITDA margins in a CPG spirits type multiple of 20 times, we're looking at a $450 to $600 billion market cap versus the current $30 billion market cap. And that's before capital returns via shared purchases or dividends. So my only point is this is so structurally inefficient, and that's why the opportunity exists. While we're down this valuation side of it, what happens? What are the big catalysts that would occur that would unlock this in your mind? There are so many catalysts, and it really comes down to regulatory. Are we looking at incrementalism or are we looking at comprehensive cannabis reform? As I mentioned earlier, I think comprehensive cannabis reform probably is not going to happen. There's something called safe banking. People who study this business know about it through and through. But basically, at the end of the day, many financial institutions don't deal with cannabis businesses out of concern for regulatory penalties, losing access to the banking system, or the possibility of federal prosecution. So this bill, in essence, would protect these institutions depending on what's written directly in the bill. This is a cash business. You cannot go use a credit card at a dispensary. That's pretty crazy. So you have a $25 billion legal market where the vast majority is cash. This is so dangerous. There's murder and robbery happening every single day. People losing their businesses and their families every single day. It is completely fixable. And this is the thing that I love. There's bipartisan support for it. It's passed House five times. There were 180 co-sponsors for safe banking, which 26 were Republicans, and 106 Republicans voted in favor, and all 250 Democrats voted in favor. If we juxtapose that to the MORE Act, this was an act to deschedule cannabis, there were social equity and social justice components. 
In fact, VP Harris was a co-sponsor in the Senate on this bill. That bill literally had one Republican co-sponsor and five Republican votes in support and six Democrats voted against. I don't think we're near comprehensive cannabis reform, but I do believe there is so much support for keeping our streets safe. Long way of answering your question, safe banking, if that gives cover fire to financial institutions to list these shares, that's a grand slam. That's how you go from growing EBITDA 50% a year, holding the multiple steady, making 100% of your money over the next few years to legitimate multi-baggers really quickly is you're going to have hundred plus billion dollars potentially of capital coming through a very, very narrow door and in a liquid market, even Robinhood can invest in these securities all at the same time. We could see something pretty spectacular if that happens in these stocks. I think we're way closer than anyone thinks to having safe banking pass. I think it happens and I think that will at least allow for a TSX uplisting, which provide far more liquidity and I'm assuming we'll solve the custody issues we hear about all the time. I want to go back a little bit to like the machinations of the business. Maybe could you pick an example of one of these MSOs and just talk us through like, what does the income statement look like? What do they sell? How much do they sell it for? What are the margins like? What are the operating expenses? And then I'm curious how you would compare that. I'll call it a normal company that doesn't have all these restrictions. How are they different and how are they similar? Instead of speaking to one MSO, it's probably pretty easy to kind of just start at the top and say, generally speaking, you're looking at at least 50% gross margins for scaled MSOs and at least 30% EBITDA margin for scaled MSOs. There is a very inefficient component here, which is the vast majority of expenses below gross profit are not tax deductible due to the federal illegality of cannabis. So effectively, the tax rate these US MSOs are paying are 50 to 70%. And the cost of debt for the most scaled MSOs are 8%, but that's not even all inclusive other costs. We're probably looking at 10% cost of debt. What that creates is an environment for entrepreneurs that Schumer and Booker claim to want to help to have prohibitively high cost of capital where there's no way they can scale these operations because it's too expensive. Their cost of debt is 20% even higher. So as you go down the PL, it is really important to call those two components out. If we were just to be a wholesaler, for example, and again, this differs state by state as every single state is different, supply and demand in every single state is different. Generally speaking, though, if you're a wholesaler, you're probably all in cost if you're growing indoors is about $700, give or take. The biggest differential is going to be utilities. Labor is probably 50% of that $700. Utilities probably 25%. The EBITDA margins you can generate are substantial depending on wholesale pricing and what your yield per square foot is in a facility. We can generate 60 to 80% EBITDA margins depending on the limited license state you're in. What's interesting is if you're selling third party, let's say you're in New Jersey and you're selling $2,500 per pound, the retailer, the third party, is going to sell that for $5,000 a pound. You're not getting the full benefit of that if it's a grower. The retailer, if they're subscale, is probably generating 45% gross margins, maybe 50% if they're really utilizing their buying power and are very smart how they buy. Their four-wall contributions probably 20 to 25%. For the scaled MSOs who really know what they're doing, who are very efficient, who have very clear scale, 
they can run retail dispensaries at 35% full wall margins. What's very interesting is if you're vertically integrated, meaning you're growing the product yourself and you're selling it through your own retail dispensaries, you take the markup yourself. You've grown it for $700, you're selling for $5,000. That's a fantastic business model. Canada, very, very different. And I think this is something that gets completely missed. I mentioned earlier that the US market's 12 times bigger than Canada, at least. Well, it's actually far bigger than that because the producers in Canada have to sell to provenances who then sell to retailers. So they're getting cut out of the economics. In the US, these MSOs have access to the entire supply chain from seed to sale. And MSOs, do they own the retail fronts typically, or is it do they show up in all shapes and sizes? What are their different business models or different business approaches? Every single state is different. So if we are in Illinois, you can only have 10 stores. If you are in Connecticut, you can have four stores. If you're in Minnesota, you can have eight stores as an owner of a license in that state. So it really does depend in the amount of canopy, which is defined differently by many people, but generally speaking, how many square feet of racks do you have? How many square feet of actual plants can you grow in a facility? That differs by state as well. So in New Jersey, you can have 150,000 square feet of growing. If you go to Florida, that's another limited license market. There's no cap on dispensaries. There's no cap on canopy. So the markets really do defer. And when you're able to get as big as you can in Florida, your scale is magnified and your margins are that much better. Got it. What's the name of an MSO as in just an example? Verano, Green Thumb, Presco Labs, Terrasen, there's a number of them. Does Presco Labs, do they have retail operations? They do. Okay. So they have their retail operations in different states. And then in each of those states, are they also growing their own stuff and they're owning that kind of the vertically integrated model? That's exactly right. And it's really important to understand this and dig a little deeper. Generally speaking, MSOs, they are the best growers. You have to imagine this. You are an illegal grower in Colorado. You have a 500 square foot garage. You then come to Illinois because someone wants to start an operation. It's a 20,000 square foot operation. You're now managing a far bigger space with far more people. You're not used to that. Growing cannabis at scale is really, really difficult, especially indoor cannabis. There's a very fine line between indoor and outdoor growth. So when we think about these MSOs and how good they are at growing on a relative basis, and I find this fascinating, every single month I go and visit a ton of dispensaries. About a year ago, you went to the same dispensary. If it wasn't an MSO dispensary, these owners are not trying to carry MSO product. They want to carry the craft growers product. Same dispensary last week. They have so much more MSO product on the shelf. And the reason is there's inconsistent quality and delivery from subscale players who simply don't know what they're doing. And that is a really big opportunity for these MSOs. So as the wholesale market grows and grows and more dispensaries come into these states, that is a phenomenal opportunity for the MSO to get their product more out there and to become these de facto state brands. And when you look at the volume of, I guess, legal marijuana in the US, what percentage of it is going to MSOs versus like the mom and pops? How do you market map? Generally speaking, I'd say 2021, maybe nine to $10 billion of sales went to these multi-state operators. So it's a nice proportion, but over the next few years, and this is such an interesting way to think about it, 
so much of that growth from Virginia, from Connecticut, from New York, from New Jersey, those economics are going to accrue in the vast majority to these MSOs. So the total TAM will change dramatically in terms of what's attributable to an MSO. And are there any large scale, I guess I'll call them MSOs who don't have retail operations, who just do wholesaling and don't get into that or any other weird ways that people are running a playbook in this space? You generally don't hear about that. If you have the opportunity to maximize your P&L, by definition, you're going to. So the margins are phenomenal from a wholesale perspective if you have one of these limited licenses. That being said, why wouldn't you want to maximize your economics? There are different MSOs who have different approaches to this. Some are very focused on the branding component and care less about retail location. So they care more about getting their product into other people's dispensaries. That's a way of building brand. Because there are so many small details of how difficult it is to market cannabis in the US on a state basis. So that's their best way of marketing. I'd say that the biggest advocates for cannabis brands are bud tenders. These are like sommeliers you'd find in a restaurant. Those are your brand advocates. So it's really important for these bud tenders to know what your product is, for you to be cozy up to the bud tenders, et cetera, so they can then promote your product. But generally speaking, I can't think of a public MSO that doesn't have some form of retail operation. With all these players in this market, obviously, sometimes there's limited new entrants, there's other things going on. But what stops these guys from beating each other up on price to the point where they have more normalized margins? You really have to understand what's every MSO's North Star. What is their purpose? What do they want to be? There are going to be MSOs who only want to sell premium product, and they're not going to be willing to play discount wars. There are MSOs that want to be the Walmart of cannabis, and they are willing to cut pricing. There's a different flavor for every type of investor and what you believe the long-term outcome to be. I do believe that ultimately pricing power is going to come from those companies who can really create innovative products. And it's a really important point that over time, as the legal market is able to reinvest their cash flow and create very differentiated products, the illicit market will not be able to keep up. So I think it's really important that instead of lowering your margin to such a significant degree, you want to ensure that you have enough cash flow to create differentiated products in order to take share from the illicit market. Because at the end of the day, competition is not another MSO. Competition is the illicit market. And lastly, when you go into states that might legalize, Pennsylvania, the governor has been adamant about legalizing adult use cannabis. He wants the jobs. He wants the tax revenue. Why should his citizens go to New York and New Jersey when they open up sales and build bridges and roads for New York and New Jersey? It makes absolutely no logical sense. There's going to be a lot more states that legalize. So people are trying to get ahead of that. People are anticipating, oh, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Ohio, those states are going to legalize potentially in 2022. Sales might start in 2023. We got to get ahead of this. So let's build out supply. So by definition, pricing does come down. But when sales start in adult use states, which we've talked about before, we talked about Illinois, Michigan, another example, same economics basically as Illinois from 250, I think they're like 280 to almost $2 billion within two years. Unbelievable growth. There has to be a view though, that what if these states don't turn on and there is too much supply in these states? That is something that MSOs have to balance. But at the end of the day, longer term, I think we all know where the puck's going. You think all these other mega trends, direct to consumer, mobile first, delivery, do any of those trends play into this world? 
I think we're going to see an increase in digital marketing from these MSOs. Apple formerly banned apps that facilitated marijuana sales and now allows we delivery service apps on its platform. Why is that important? As delivery becomes more popular and allowed, again, every state is different. Some states don't allow delivery, some do. Your brand is going to become very important. If you're not going to speak to a bud tender in a store, how do you know which brand to buy? So in my opinion, these companies are going to have to get a lot more sophisticated and intelligent in a digital world. If you go to California, we'll compare California to an East Coast state. California, there's literally armies of folks that work for brands that go pound the pavement, pay slotting fees, do all that jazz to get their product in store. On the East Coast, you don't have nearly high marketing costs because that simply doesn't exist because these are limited license markets. You don't have armies of people doing these activities. Every single state is different. But what I think is really important, and people should do this if they're interested in investing in the space, go figure out how consistent the quality is of each brand. Go try Mindy's Edibles in five different states and tell me what the consistency is, what the flavor profile is, what the effect is, because every single state doesn't allow you to create the exact same product. You have to reformulate it a bit differently. So if you can have Mindy's Edibles, for example, at scale on East Coast states that are limited license, you're kind of de facto creating a national brand, even though you might not be in California. So there's different ways of attacking marketing. But I think at the end of the day, everyone's going to tell you, you need consistent quality at scale. And a couple of dumb questions. I think you've sort of said this, but I presume you cannot produce in New York or some state and send to another state. That's just not allowed. That is not allowed. And you may not also import from anywhere. In the United States of America, you are absolutely not allowed to do that for THC-based cannabis. Is cannabis perishable? Every single state has its own definition. How long are you allowed to have an edible out? How long are you allowed to have flour? You have to throw it away at a certain point. You have to destroy it. Generally speaking... Flour, for example, does go dry. You lose the beautiful color, the stickiness of it sometimes, the longer it's not consumed. So by definition, you don't want to consume three-year-old flour. So yes, cannabis can go bad and it, it does go bad. Generally speaking, our retail stores will keep 15 to 20 days of inventory on hand because they can get deliveries every single week. So they're not keeping and hoarding hundreds of days of supply. There's another alternative reason for that being they don't have enough space in their store to store everything. But by definition, you don't want too much supply. You talked about how digital marketing is going to change because of the nature of legality in the state by state. Are there other industries like finance and financing these companies? You mentioned their cost of capital is very high. How is that industry evolving around this? And are there other industries that we haven't talked about that are evolving alongside this? Industries definitely are evolving. We're seeing many more public companies come to play from financing to manufacturing to distribution. There are tens of thousands of cannabis businesses out there. There's only about 50 publicly traded US cannabis companies. So by definition, over time, this market should only get bigger and the investable universe should only get bigger. So yes, there's many different ways of approaching the investment universe here. Are there specialty banks or lenders that play at all in this space or that are cannabis only? It's an important thing to discuss because as I mentioned, this is a cash business. Let's go through what happens when you buy something at a dispensary with cash. So say you spend $300 at a dispensary in cash. An armored truck's going to come every other day, pick up that cash, bring it to your bank. And that's how cash moves across business. 
When we think about who are banking these companies, it is a de minimis percentage of total banks in the United States of America. Last time I checked, I want to say there were about 10% of banks and credit unions that were willing to do this. The requirements of a bank banking a cannabis company that touches the plant, and this is very important, touching the plant is completely different than, say, a manufacturer or distributor. They're allowed to list on major exchanges because, by definition, they're not touching the plant. So that is not relevant to this context. But for folks that are banking companies that touch the plant, there are so many more checks that is so much more comprehensive and time-consuming in and of itself. I mean, that industry is growing and more people are willing to do it because, by definition, there are excess economics to soak up when others are not willing to do it. You mentioned COVID earlier. I want to get a little more specific on the numbers. So COVID was a boon for the industry. Tell us what happened. During COVID, cannabis was dubbed an essential service in practically every single state except Massachusetts. So what you had were a bunch of legal markets that were turning on. A great example, Illinois legalized cannabis on January 1. And this is actually a great case study. If we go back to 2019, medical sales in Illinois were $250 million. Gen 1, cannabis turns on. We're run rating as of this past December at about $2 billion in legal cannabis sales, of which 30% of those sales come from out-of-state residents, generating more tax revenue from cannabis than alcohol within two years in the state. So when we think about what happened in COVID, a bunch of people who are new to the category, and by the way, just to put this in perspective, only about 10% of consumers consume cannabis monthly versus 55 to 60% for alcohol. So there's a lot more room to grow here. But a lot of folks went from the illicit market to the legal market. They didn't want to go meet a drug dealer outside and pay in cash. So much theft's going on. Or am I going to get COVID? People were freaking out. So they wanted to go do curbside pickup or something like that for legal cannabis dispensaries. And that's what created this big pull forward of demand. And in my opinion, we're just getting started. And I think there's really interesting numbers to put around this. If we look at Colorado, Colorado, people thought was a very mature market. In 2019, it did about $1.7 billion. It's going to do about $2.5 billion in 2021, $2.4 to $2.5 billion. Revenue per capita in Colorado is over $400. Now let's look at California. California is a $5 billion market. In 2019, it was $2.7 billion. Revenue per capita in California, though, is such a smaller number due to the setup of California, the structure. There's not enough dispensaries. Taxes are egregiously high. If you wanted to go by product, you're paying a 40% tax rate. That's crazy. If you go by pod in Massachusetts, you're paying a 20% tax rate. So when we think about COVID, it absolutely pulled forward demand and consumption habits. And do you think of it as a pull forward thing or an adoption thing? Like there's exercise companies where it felt like they went up and then they're going to go down because it was just pull forward demand that was coming. But then there's companies like Zoom, where it just forced adoption into the world in a way that feels like a one-way street. So which one is this in your mind? We're seeing slow sequential growth. That being said, what's the reason for that? Stimulus checks going away, people leaving their homes and experiencing life for the first time in a very long time. I think this hangover is well-deserved. But over the long term, nothing in my mind said this industry is not going to be gargantuan. In my opinion, in a decade or two decades or five years, I don't know what it is, you're going to go to a baseball game, you're going to buy a beer that's infused with THC. 
you're not going to want to get a hangover. You're not going to have a ton of calories. You're just going to go consume a cannabis-based beverage. You're going to go to a concert. You're going to buy flour over the counter. That's how I think this is going to evolve. And so as I think about the hangover we're experiencing now, it's so irrelevant. I really believe when New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut turn on adult use sales, people are going to say, wow, didn't know cannabis actually helped consumers deal with problems. They always thought it was this lazy man's drug. Factually incorrect. Look what the NDA is doing, what the NFL is doing, look what the UFC is doing. People are not lazy when they consume cannabis. This is a real deal thing. That's a real deal consumer product. And the consumer product side, is there form factors? Like again, everyone in their mind is like a little joint that someone's smoking behind the building sort of thing. But you said edibles, you said other things. Like, Are there killer form factors that this shows up in? Are there interesting things happening there? The form factor really changes when you go from medical markets to adult use legal markets. Medicinal consumers generally prefer inhalation, smoking, flour. So when a market turns on in a medical market, you're going to see a higher amount of flour sales. That being said, in a more mature market, about 50% of the basket is flour and pre-rolls, 30% vape, 10% edibles, and there's concentrates, etc. In my opinion, over time, and this is what's going to make the industry substantially bigger than anyone is estimating, people of different demographics, of older demographics, are going to come into the category and consume edibles and seltzers. They don't want to smoke flour. That seems very unhealthy to them. Actually, this is a great story. I was at a dispensary in Mass last week, and I met this older gentleman. He was 75 years old. And we started talking. And I said, Dan, are you here for medicinal product or for fun? And he, go, he whispered to me, for fun. He said, a friend of mine gave me a pre-roll seven years ago, and I've been smoking them all the time ever since. I said, have you tried edibles? Never. I gave him a tin of edibles. He sent me a text four hours later. I just tried edibles. I love them. I'm never smoking again. So I think over time, the way my parents are going to come into the category and someone else's parents are going to come into the category, it's not through this scary type of consumption people might fear. It's going to be from this, okay, let's go really light. Let's try two and a half milligrams. Oh, I like that. I don't need Ambien anymore. I'm going to try five milligrams. And that's how that's going to change the consumer habit. And I really think New York and then just simply federal legalization is paramount to get away this negative social stigma that is cannabis. Let's look forward a little bit. You obviously are super excited about this industry. If in five or 10 years, it's even bigger than what you expect, what happened in the macro environment and what do these MSOs do from an operational perspective? I, by definition, believe that sell-side estimates over the long term, over the next decade, are too low on how big the legal cannabis market will be. I think what will change is going to be, as I've said before, New York carrying cannabis product. And I think really importantly, these MSOs are generating such significant cash flow that their ability to invest in their business, the ability to reinvest and create new form factors and more innovative products is going to change the game. Instead of having an edible that takes an hour and a half to kick in, there's going to be a time-released edible, much like time-released Adderall. It'll kick in in 15 minutes, et cetera, and you'll be able to dose yourself in different ways. So I think that this category is going to be far bigger. I especially think when you have on-premise type consumption, much like we do with alcohol, it'll be bigger. And US alcohol is a $250 billion market. Cannabis, as we said, is a $100 billion market. Cannabis consumers spend $2,700 annually on cannabis. Alcohol is $1,400. There was a great survey that came out last year, and it showed that of the 
40% of folks who consume both cannabis and alcohol, 44% preferred cannabis, 30% alcohol, and the rest were indifferent. Why is that interesting? The cost of the finest cannabis in the world is a fraction of the price of mediocre alcohol, but you don't have the hangover effect. You can still wake up early. You're not going to be aggressive as some people might be when they consume alcohol. And in my opinion, that is what is going to change people's opinions. I know so many people who used to consume alcohol every single day, and now they barely consume alcohol. This cannabis has taken over for them. And it's really important to dig into the form factors. Every single form factor has a different effect on the body. When we consume tequila or whiskey or vodka, the use case is pretty darn similar. The effect's similar. When you consume cannabis, it's very different. Even an edible can be different one to the next because how much CBG is in it? How much THC is in it? How much CBD is in it? You can reformulate how you want to have a different effect on the body. And that goes for flour, that goes for tinctures, that goes for concentrates. So as I think about this industry longer term, I think we're in the beginning innings of something that is so new that people don't actually understand what this really could be longer term. As this market matures and evolves, how do you see M&A playing out? We need to look to Canada first to understand how this will evolve. Canada, as we've discussed before, terrible market. These companies are burning cash flow, but big companies that everyone's heard of, Altria, British American Tobacco, Molson Coors, ABI. These folks already in some form have some type of investment in these Canadian LPs. In my opinion, it's not because they think these are the winners of the future. It's to learn about the business. However, they're not allowed to buy in the US and consolidate that on their balance sheet. The reason is the federal illegality would cause a delisting, which obviously they do not want. So I think that they're listening and they're learning. The Canadian LPs are actually acquiring US companies, but they're doing it, quote unquote, upon US federal legality. So they're, in essence, owning the company longer term, but they're not actually owning it today. They're buying the options today to take it over in the future. So when I think longer term, I absolutely think the high quality MSOs will not exist over the next decade or whenever these companies are allowed to be acquired by strategics. And then furthermore, a really great dynamic for these MSOs in the US is by definition, because the cost of debt is egregiously high, private equity is not coming in levering up 5x, 6x to buy. And then no one else can really buy. So just MSOs buying subscale operators and as MSOs fill up their number of dispensaries in a state or amount of cultivation they can have in a state, there's less competition to buy the next operator. So you have a lower purchase price, hypothetically, which is fascinating because these companies are buying at three to four times EBITDA. I don't know what other industry is growing this fast where you can buy at that multiple. So I find that to be quite an interesting dynamic. Last three questions we ask everyone who joins Business Breakdowns. What are the lessons for builders, entrepreneurs, and executives listening? What are the lessons for investors? And where can people look for further study if they want to learn more about this? So let's just take them one at a time. So if you're an entrepreneur or executive listening out there, what do you think is the lesson of the cannabis industry? This is a completely different industry than anything you've probably ever done. Growing quality cannabis that can sell consistently is exceedingly difficult. And the cost of capital is egregiously high because folks in the government have not given you the opportunity to get a lower cost of debt, to hire better people. Because right at the end of the day, 
the most important component of growing cannabis is your grower and your employees. Is a really high quality grower going to want to go to a subscale player where they can't get stock? They can't benefit in the upside nearly as much. I mean, the answer is definitively no. So I'd say for builders, be very cautious and be very wary. And don't just assume you're going to get rich really quickly because that is not what happens in this industry. One funny lesson, given how hard you're saying it is, I'm like, as long as there's demand, <laughs> people will find a way to, <laughs> as hard as it may be. It's so important that you say that because there's different ways of investing in the space. I think the average retail investor, if they're interested in participating in the space, should be buying ETFs. The amount of diligence required to get comfortable that the company you're investing in is not a charlatan, that is not a bad actor, is beyond anything I've ever studied. You have to go see the facilities. You have to speak to the growers. You have to be able to have pattern recognition where I walk into a growing facility and there's a new investor there. New investor says, oh my God, this is unbelievable. I'm sitting back saying, this is garbage. These plants are sick. I can see mold growing on this plant. I can see a leak in the ceiling on this plant. This plant's growing too high. This guy's on his cell phone who's supposed to be looking at these plants. It is really hard to select the right securities in this industry. In my opinion, for people who want to really dig in and do bottoms up work, there's a lot of alpha to be generated here relative to the ETFs, but you got to do the work. Call a thousand staffers in DC, understand what their leaders are saying. What are the senators saying? Go to the facilities, do a dispensary visit, talk to everyone in line. That's the way you get comfortable as an investor. So lessons for investors. Don't just assume because the multiples look cheap, this is the right company. By definition, if you're an MSO and in a limited licensed state, you're going to have good margins because to your point, there's not enough product and too much demand. What happens when competition increases? The scale players who know how to grow really high quality pot, they're going to succeed and you're going to be left for dead. And where would you recommend people go if they want to learn more about this space? Marijuana Moment is a very good publication to give investors a macro view on what's happening from a regulatory perspective and a state-level perspective. Aside from that, I mean, you can Google for days and days and become infatuated with this space and you'll keep on learning. All right. Well, this was a super fascinating and different than anything we've ever heard before, Jeff. So thanks so much for coming on Business Breakdowns. Thank you so much. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 